Well, my name's Dennis. I'm the pastor over at the Antioch campus of Golden Hills Community Church. And uh, we're the much smaller version of what happens here every Sunday. We record Pastor Larry at the 745 service. This morning they recorded me. And so everyone over there got to wave at the screen and talk to me. And um, I'm, I'm obviously preaching here. The section of scripture that we're going to be going over is one that my guess is many of you have already heard. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Oftentimes it's taught from the perspective that it's the commissioning of Isaiah, where he goes from a, a man who's devout, who's, who's ready to serve God, but he, he gets caught up into this vision, into the throne room of God, and he experiences firsthand the, the holiness and the power of God. And then in, in the transition, as he goes through this vision, he, he becomes one called to speak forth the Word of God, that he becomes a prophet of God. But the context of it that we're going to teach from today is, is, a, is a larger context, that it, while it is the commissioning of Isaiah, it's, it's, it's a picture on a grander scale of the holiness of God. And not just, not just the holiness of God, but the transformative power of the holiness of God. When we as humans come in contact with a right view or a right understanding of God's holiness, we are changed, we're transformed, we have no choice. And so this, this section is a picture of that transformation in Isaiah, but also what he saw, what he experienced when he was brought into in this vision in the throne room of God. But we don't always get it, do we? A lot of times God wants to reveal things to us. He wants to show us things, but we don't know, okay, I won't put you in my boat. I don't always get it. When God wants to show me something, when he wants to reveal something to me, I don't always understand it. I'm blinded at times. In fact, it reminds me of a story that I read this week where this man was brought by his family in to go see a psychiatrist. And as they sat him down before the doctor, the family sat and talked to the psychiatrist and they said, we've tried everything we can, there's nothing we can do. He thinks he's dead. And it doesn't matter what we say, what we do, we've taken him to amusement parks, we took him to the Grand Canyon, we've given him all these experiences so that he can feel alive and he just believes that he's dead. And so the psychiatrist sits and talks to the man for a little while. At the end of the session, he says, okay, well, it's very interesting. He walks over to his large library-like wall of books, climbs up on the ladder, starts pulling down books on biology and physiology and anatomy and psychology. And as he, he brings them over to his desk and he begins to mark sections within the books, and he hands this large stack of books to the man. He says, I'd like you to go home and read these. Come back next week and tell me what you've learned from the books. So the man dutifully takes the books home, reads them, comes back the next week. The doctor says, so what have you learned? He said, well, I learned that if you are alive, you can bleed, and dead men cannot bleed. Doctor stroked his beard very inquisitively, and he said, that's very interesting. And he walked over to his desk, opens the drawer, pulls out a large pin, grabs the man by the wrist, and jams the pin through the man's hand. And he pulls the pin back out, and a little drop of blood forms on the man's hand. 
and falls off his hand. And the doctor said, well, what do you think about that? The man said, jumping Jehoshaphat. Dead men do bleed. (laughs) See, the problem is sometimes we just don't get it. It doesn't matter what we've read. It doesn't matter what we've experienced. Sometimes we just don't get it because we're blinded. And in fact, the the sad thing is, while that joke is kind of cute, I found an article that describes the problem that humanity has straight across the board. It was from from, um, Psychology Today. It was about a doctor named uh, Dr. Stephen Diamond. Most people would label selfishness a negative trait, as Dr. Stephen Diamond writes in Psychology Today. Most of us are taught from childhood that selfishness is sinful, bad, or evil. So parents reflexively encourage generous sharing, not selfish hoarding. And if a friend says to you, you're selfish, you are unlikely to thank him or her for the compliment. But you're also quick to pin the selfish label on others, but not so often on ourselves. For instance, in 2015, a Pew Research poll revealed that 68% of us say the term selfish applies to the typical American. In 2014, another survey found that 71% of adults believe that millennials, people ages 18 to 29, are selfish. Remarkably, the exact same percentage of millennials, 71%, agreed In an an article titled, I'm Okay, You're Selfish, the New York Times Magazine reported only 17% say that they are overly concerned about themselves, but 60% think that most other people are overly concerned about themselves. We just don't get it. We miss out when it comes to a proper assessment of ourselves, of our sinful nature. We, we totally miss it. And this section, as Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God, he's transported to a place where the scales fall off and instantly he can see his need for atonement. His, his sinful nature and how repugnant that seems in the sight of God. Because the holiness of God is brought into clear view. And see, my problem is that the more I look around to Christianity as a whole, the church, I see the dumbing down of God's holiness. And the, the dumbing down of God's holiness, while it, some may, it, it may make some people more comfortable, What it does as a direct result is that it allows the sin nature to rise up in the body of Christ, which is abhorrent in God's view. And so my hope is that today, as we read through this section, our eyes will be open, our ears will hear, and we will see the holiness of God and its transformative power to change. I agree. (laughs) If you'll read along with me, 
In Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. You see, this section starts off with a historical context clue, and that that context clue is in the year that Uzziah died. Uzziah was a king of Jerusalem, and in the year that he died, Isaiah experienced all of this. In order to understand the vision that God gives Isaiah, we have to understand the kingship and the rule of the kingdom of Uzziah. Because God creates for Isaiah a picture that he can understand. It's it's called an anthropomorphic vision. Anthropomorphic means that God, because of our limited understanding, has to use human terminology or human imagery in order for us to understand the truth about him and his kingdom. It's like when God says, Is my right hand too short? Or is my right arm not strong enough? We know by Scripture that God the Father is spirit. He's not a body. He's not a physical being. Jesus Christ is the physical manifestation of God in the flesh. God the Father reveals himself by using anthropomorphic terms. Do I have a right hand? No, I don't. But so that you can understand that I can save, that I can deliver, that with my mighty right hand, I can gather you in. And so as he begins to describe this to Isaiah, he has to use terms that Isaiah will understand. So in order to understand the terms that God's going to use, we have to look at the kingship of Uzziah. And I wish I had time to read chapter 26 of, of, Seneca, of Second Chronicles to you. If you have a chance today when you go home, please go home and read this. It's a, it's a section that describes Uzziah. He was 16 years old when he became the king. His father somewhat served God but did so half-heartedly. Uzziah was a man that served the Lord with his whole heart. Now, that doesn't mean that he was perfect, but it means that he was a good king, that he sought out the Lord, that he wanted to serve the Lord. In fact, he was a great general. He was someone who protected Jerusalem. 
The descriptions of him historically are that he rebuilt the walls of different cities, that he made the walls of Jerusalem higher, that he built towers into the walls of Jerusalem and had smart, wise men build machines of war that he could put on top of these towers. By the description, it sounds like they may have been catapults. He was a great general. In fact, historically, he's only second in his military dominance to David. But he's not just a military tactician. He's not just someone that creates safety for Jerusalem. He's someone that creates great provision for Jerusalem. And he grew vineyards all around. Prosperity reigned in Jerusalem. He had huge flocks that roamed the hills around Jerusalem. But it wasn't just a king who owned flocks, who had vineyards. It says that he was a man who loved the soil. That he would go out through the gates, and as he went out through the gates, he would go out and he would dig in the dirt, and he would watch his flocks, and he would talk to the people. And he was a very popular king. The people loved him, and he loved his people. Don't you love guys like that? The ones that don't live up in the ivory tower, but have some dirt under their fingernails? The ones that know what it's like to go out and work hard and have sunburnt skin. And Uzziah was that kind of king. And he brought prosperity according to the history of Israel He's third in their prosperous kings behind Solomon and Jehoshaphat is Uzziah. The people loved him. But like I said, he wasn't perfect. Unfortunately, as we find out later on in Uzziah's life, using a a modern uh, term, he began to believe his own press clippings. He reigned for 52 years, and during that 52-year reign, he saw what he had provided for Israel. And during that time, he began to believe that he was the one creating the circumstances by which Jerusalem could prosper. And because of that, pride took hold of his heart, and he began to believe that he was not only the general and the king and the one creating prosperity, but he was the one who could make sacrifices for the people. And so as he entered into the temple one day with his censer full of incense, he walked before the altar of the Lord and was ready to make a sacrifice to the Lord for the people. The high priest, along with 80 other priests, charged into the temple wanting to guard the holiness of the temple of God. And they confronted the king and they said, how dare you do this? This is not right for you to do. Only the descendants of Aaron, the priests, can offer incense before the altar of the Lord. Wanting to guard the purity of the temple, they risked their lives by confronting the king. And as the king began to rage at the priests, God struck him with leprosy right on his forehead so that it could never be hidden so that anyone that looked him in the eyes would know the destructive infection that had taken hold of him. 
In fact, when Uzziah died, he couldn't even be buried with the other kings from Jerusalem because God had stricken him with leprosy. So he had to be buried in a separate section because he was leprous. And so as Isaiah is lamenting, as Isaiah is looking at Israel in this time of fear and in this time of questioning, he can see the people wondering what's going to happen next. Who's going to be our next king? Is he going to be as good as the king that we just had? Or is he going to be dangerous? Is he going to lead us away from the Lord? Is God going to have to judge us? And God shows Isaiah a picture of what the kingdom is really like. Not the human kingdom, not the earthly kingdom, not this rich ruler that was very popular, that was protecting Israel. I want you to know me, the one who is really providing the one who was really protecting, the one who was really growing and building and saving. And this is how Isaiah begins to describe what he saw in the throne room of God. He says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, the, the train of his robe being described as having filled the temple would have been an image that Isaiah would have understood because the length of a king's robe in those days indicated the greatness of the king. In fact, one of the commentaries that I read this week studying for this message described how when a conquering king would take the kingdom, finally he would go into the throne room of the king that he had conquered and they would cut off a piece of that king's robe and he would have it sewn onto the train of his own robe. And so the longer the train of the king's robe, the greater the indication of the king's power and victory in war. So as Isaiah goes into the throne room of God, he sees a train on a robe that fills the entire temple. That means that every single warrior, king, adversary that had come against God was already defeated. And that their throne was destroyed. And that their robe was cut to shreds. And sewn on to the train of the one true king. In fact, there was another man that saw the throne room of God. And sometimes, sometimes I feel bad for John. He was a fisherman. He was the one whom Jesus loved. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. I don't feel bad for him because Jesus loved him. I feel bad for him because there were times that he had to try and describe things as a fisherman that fishermen just don't have the words to describe. And so when you read in Revelation chapter 4, I want you to listen to the description that John gives of the throne room of God. It starts in verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, 
Come here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Going to verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In the front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a, glass, a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. As Isaiah is caught up into this throne, he sees things that his mind can't comprehend. But it's a description of God's power, of his, his otherness, that God is by nature perfect and right, and that his dominion has no end. And that there will be no one who can stand against him. But just as John was trying to describe those heavenly beings that he was seeing that had different faces and eyes, and listen to the way um, Isaiah tried to describe these beings. It says, above him were seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. That it's not just the kingdom of God that's filled with His holiness, but it's the entire earth. It's all of creation. It's every square inch of every molecule that was ever made that is covered by the holiness of God. And these beings are crying this back and forth in this heavenly choir. This side says holy, and then this side says holy, and then this side says holy. And then they start saying the whole earth is filled with God's glory. But I have to try and describe what these seraphim are like. And this is, this is where I kind of turn into a word vulture where you sit down, you start to study, and you have to pick these words apart until there's just like bones left in front of you. And, and the, the etymology of the word seraphim in Hebrew comes from a word that means fire. But it's not just fire. It's a white, hot, blazing, destroying fire. And, and the likelihood is based on the, the sociological makeup of the Hebrew people that they named things after what they did rather than what they were. So rather than just calling something an angel, even the word angel means messenger. It means something that you do. 
The word seraphim most likely is a description of these angelic beings in their fiery, pure, powerful, destructive nature. And that these are the beings that are calling back and forth within the throne room of God, the holy nature of God. What would that be like? On your uh, little outlines that I gave you guys that should have been handed out, I think the word there is, is you, that I used is gobsmacked. Gobsmacked is a British term. I married into a British family. And so gobsmacked is a term that means the shock and surprise that one experiences when they get punched in the mouth. That's what Isaiah is experiencing. As he's standing there before the perfection of God, watching these heavenly beings in all of their power and destructive greatness calling back and forth, he's gobsmacked. The term that I put above all that for that section is astonished. Because the minute you begin to have a right view or a right understanding of God's holiness, we're astonished. We don't have a box big enough to understand or describe or contain who God is. And that's where the transformation begins in our lives. And the first step in the transformation of Isaiah is acknowledgement. So we have astonishment, and that moves to acknowledgement. I want you to listen to the acknowledgement, to the moment of clarity that Isaiah has in verse 5, where he says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In that moment when Isaiah understands that he is a sinful being that has been drawn into the presence of God's throne room, fear grips his heart. One of the issues with fear, as I stated before, is when we, have an un, when we have an unhealthy view of God's holiness, fear will cause us to do one of two things. Either one, we will run away from God and then try and dumb down God, trying to create a God that looks more like us, one that we feel more comfortable with, one who's okay with our problems. Or two, Fear can make you lean in to God, to run towards God. The section of Scripture that I want to read to you now is probably one that many of you know. It's a section that we oftentimes teach to children or even to brand new converts in Christianity. And it's uh, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it's one of those bedrock sections of Scripture that we have to understand, that, that the minute you begin to understand the greatness and the power and the authority of God, that that is the beginning of wisdom or, or applied knowledge in the life of a Christian. 
But I want to read it to you in the context, because the context, I believe, has greater application even to Isaiah than we know. Because I believe that Isaiah was a man who understood the Scriptures. And so starting in verse 9, instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. As Isaiah cries out before the Lord, Woe is me! I'm doomed! I deserve destruction. He has a right understanding of who he is. And confession at that moment is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Confession literally means that we agree with God, that God in his righteousness says whatever it is that's true about us. But I want you to see in this section that God never shames Isaiah. Guilt and shame are two totally different things. You don't see God shaking his finger at Isaiah saying, how dare you? Isaiah comes to a realization of guilt based on God's perfection. And his guilt deserves punishment. And so he confesses before the righteous judge that he is exactly what the judge has deemed that he is. I found another article this week that describes the issues that are created when justice is not met and when confession can bring healing. It's an article about an attorney named Mr. Stroud. Attorney A.M. Stroud, Marty Stroud III of Shreveport, Louisiana, was the lead prosecutor in the December 1984 first-degree murder trial of Glenn Ford, who was sentenced to death for the death of a Shreveport jeweler. Ford was released from prison March 11, 2014, after the state admitted new evidence proving Ford was not the killer. A year later, March 2015, Stroud wrote a brutally honest apology for the Shreveport Times. In 1984, I was 33 years old. I was arrogant judgmental, narcissistic, and very full of myself. I was not as interested in justice as I was in winning. To borrow a phrase from Al Pacino in the movie Injustice for All, winning became everything. As a result, Mr. Ford spent 30 years of his life in a small, dingy cell. Lighting was poor, Heating and cooling were almost non-existent. Food bordered on inedible. After the death verdict was handed down, 
I went out with others and celebrated with a few rounds of drinks. That's sick. I had been entrusted with the duty to seek the death of a fellow human being, a very solemn task that certainly did not warrant any celebration. In my rebuttal argument during the penalty phase of the trial, I mocked Mr. Ford, stating that this man wanted to stay alive so that he could be given the opportunity to prove his innocence. How totally wrong I was. I apologize to Glenn Ford for all the misery I have caused him and his family. I apologize to the victim's family for giving them the false hope of some closure. I apologize to the members of the jury for not having all the story that, they should, have been, that should have been disclosed to them. And I apologize to the court for not having been more diligent in my duty. When standing before the judge, when the judge has all the information, when your guilt is apparent, confession is the only route. And as Isaiah stood before the judge, the king, the one who held all authority in his hand, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. And he has a moment of greater realization that he comes from a people of unclean lips. That he can't even, he can't even say that I came from good stock. I come from an entire group of sinful people. As the astonishment hit, and then the acknowledgement took hold, Isaiah became hungry for atonement. This is the way he describes the atonement in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which had been taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Atoned for means that it was the penalty paid, that it wasn't just God taking the sin of Isaiah and sweeping it under the cosmic rug of the universe and pretending like it didn't happen, kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge thing, like, you know, it's okay. No. Atoned for means that it was paid, that as this seraphim flew over to the altar. Remember the sin that Uzziah was, was dealt with for was that he went to offer incense before the altar of the Lord. The seraphim in all of his greatness, in all of his purity, in all of his holiness can't even touch the altar of the Lord. He had to reach in with tongs because the altar is where sin is dealt with. And so as the seraphim flew over and removed a white hot live coal from the altar, he flew over to Isaiah's lips and pressed it against the sinful part of Isaiah. That coal is a picture of Jesus. The atoning power 
of Jesus. That one would come from the altar in the presence of the throne room of God, white, hot, and alive, and pure, and perfect, able to come in contact with the sin of man. And as he does, he purifies, pays for, takes away the sin of man. And as that coal comes in contact with Isaiah, as it becomes cool and gray, and loses its life. As the sin is removed, that once vibrant coal is now dead and cold. Isaiah had his first picture of the life of Jesus, God in the flesh the atonement for our sins. But my question is, do you desire that? As I've studied this over the last month, the Lord has constantly convicted me in the areas of my heart that are still wrong. And he says, son, do you want to be cleansed? Do you want that white, hot touch to take away that peace that is still repugnant? You're saved. But do you want to be cleansed? Do you want to be renewed, sanctified, transformed into the image of my son? If you're anything like me, as you've been listening to this message, there might be a list starting to build into your head. Those things that you did this morning or this week those things that you shouldn't have said, or that attitude that not only should you have not had, but you relished it. Those things that you coveted. That thing that God called you to do that you said no to. Do you hunger For that live coal to touch you? And transform you? Because the last section, I titled it Adjustment. Last year, my mom came to move into our house and came to live with us over the summer, she only lived with us for 50 days. She was diagnosed with lung cancer. And so she went downhill very quickly. During that time that she was at our house, she accepted the Lord. And so my mom is fine. It was one of the greatest days of my life when I got to pray with my mom and she received Jesus Christ as her Savior, the atonement for her sin. 
after my mom passed away, I inherited a house. And so as of last September, last year, I started working on that house. And I, this, is, this was the makeup of my day. I would wake up. I would go to work over at the Antioch campus. I would go home. I would take children to soccer practice. I would bring children back home from soccer practice. I would go to my mom's house, and I would remodel the house until 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. I would go back home, and I would go to sleep. There's nothing about my body as a pastor that can maintain that kind of construction schedule for any length of time. And yet, praise God, I went through and I sold the house in December. I finished it as it was going on the market. Praise the Lord, it sold in eight days all by His grace. The day that the house closed, my neck went bad. It decided it hated me. I have experienced pain. Every time I've experienced, I had gout. I went into the doctor. The doctor said, oh, gout is horrible. It's the worst pain you'll ever have. Football players, professional football players are brought to their knees. Then I got a kidney stone. And the doctor's like, oh, no, 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 kidney stones, kidney stones. There. Women tell me that it's worse than giving birth. And I don't know. I've never given birth to anything except a kidney stone. So that's all I know. And then my neck went bad. I have a new 10. When they ask me, rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10, I have a brand new 10. It was like being lit on fire and electrocuted and stabbed in the neck all at the same time. And I went to my friend, who's a chiropractor, and he cracked my neck. And electricity shot down both arms. And I thought, I, I think this is good, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt as bad as it used to be. And over time, it's gotten better. When the pain grows to the point where you're willing to take the adjustment, that you need to change, God's willing to adjust you, to grow you, to alleviate the pain so that you can walk in the fullness of who He designed you to be. That doesn't mean you won't experience suffering, but it means walking with God is way better than walking without Him. And so, God calls us to be bold ambassadors. Let me just read this section to you. It's the last section, and then we'll close. But this is the way the Apostle Paul asked the church in Ephesus to pray for him. In chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says this, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fear, fearlessly or boldly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The astonishment of the holiness of God set in, in motion a transformational period in Isaiah's life where he acknowledged his sin, where he received the atonement, and he was willing to adjust 
This is the way Isaiah describes his adjustment in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. A minute ago, Isaiah would have done anything he could to hide from the presence of God, and yet instead of hiding, he pressed into the atonement of God, received the forgiveness, and now he has been made a bold ambassador. So that when God calls for volunteers, he says, here I am, here, here I am, God. Take me. I'll go. I don't even know what you're going to ask me to do. I'll go. And my question is, what could the church look like if we adjusted like that? If we said, Lord, there's openings in children's ministry. I don't know anything about kids except maybe eating paste, but I'll go do it. Lord, I don't know what you're going to call me to do, but whatever you want me to do, I'll go do it because I don't want to go back. Astonishment, acknowledgement, atonement, and adjustment brought about by a right view of the holiness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your grace is sufficient. Lord, that your mercy is new every day. And Lord, that we can press into the holiness of God. And Lord, that you are willing to purify and transform a people into the body of the Son of God. Lord, we ask that you would take us. Here we are. Lord, send us. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.